Hi there. I'm Sue Elvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 99. And today I'd like to continue the conversation about unschool maths. At the end of episode 98, I did say that I would probably be dissatisfied with the podcast once I sat down and listened to it. And I said if that happened, I could always come back next week and add some more. So that's exactly what I want to do. I feel that Unschool Maths is a big topic. There's a lot we could say about it. And I have written quite a lot of blog posts on this topic. And today I'd like to share a few more of those with you and discuss the ideas in them. Before I start sharing my ideas, I would just like to say that if I didn't do anything with my girls, if I ignored the topic of maths altogether, I am confident that they would pick up maths skills. Kids learn what they need to know. And they are in contact with maths all the time. It is everywhere around us in the world, even though sometimes we fail to see it. But I am not sitting back and letting my kids discover maths entirely on their own. And there are two reasons for this. One is that I have to have maths notes for my homeschool records books. I have to prove to the education department that my girls are learning maths. This is very inconvenient, but it is a fact of life. I have to live with this. So I am very maths conscious. The other reason that I strew maths experiences in front of my girls is because they might discover that maths is a fascinating topic. I strew other things. Why not maths? Open up the possibilities. Enrich their lives. If they don't like any of the things that I find for them, they are free to reject them. They might not be maths people. By strewing maths, my daughter Sophie did discover she likes maths. A lot of my blog posts talk about how Sophie looks at maths in a creative way. She likes playing around with numbers. And this has happened since we stopped doing formal maths. As I told you last week, she got to the stage with her structured maths course where she was saying, I hate maths, I'm no good at it. And this was the reason why I got brave enough to throw away those structured maths courses and consider something else. And that something else was unschooling maths. Since we've been strewing experiences looking at maths in a different way from structured maths, she has discovered that, yes, maths is a very interesting topic. Unfortunately, my daughter Gemma Rose, who is 13, isn't a maths person. She will learn all the maths she needs to know, but I don't think she wants to know any more. That is quite all right as well. I have had to take maths very gently with Gemma Rose. When I utter the word maths, sometimes she just closes up. I wonder if this would have happened if we had unschooled maths right from the beginning. She only did structured maths for a very short time, but maybe that was enough for her to get wary about the word maths. Whatever the reason, she doesn't really enjoy maths. She doesn't really want to explore it. 
Though as she's getting older, she is getting more open to my strewing ideas, but it isn't at the top of her list of things to do. So we started unschooling maths because I was afraid that my girls would start to say, I hate maths and I'm no good at it. I've heard a lot of people who've gone to school who say exactly the same thing. Doing structured maths has ruined the subject for them. I think I would have got to the stage where I would have given up structured maths for another reason, and that is because I began to realize that we can't force kids to learn anything that they don't want to know. We think we can. We've all gone through school and we've all done things that we would choose not to do. We have learnt things we're not interested in. But really, is that real learning? We learnt the things that we didn't want to know anything about for particular reasons. And before I get into my Unschool Maths posts, I'd like to share a post with you about how we can't force kids to learn. It's about Gemma Rose. Making children learn what they don't want to know. My children follow their own interests when it comes to learning. This sounds rather indulgent, doesn't it? Why should I let them direct their own learning? Hey, they're only kids. How do they know what they need to know? I stop and think about these questions for a moment, and then I remember something my youngest daughter, Gemma Rose, said to me a while ago. You can't make me learn anything I don't want to learn. These weren't the words of a defiant child. They were the observation of a rather astute eight-year-old. You can't make me learn anything I don't want to learn. This reminds me very much of trying to make children eat. We can't forcibly feed a child something they haven't a desire for, however hard we try. In the same way, we can't really stuff knowledge into a child's head if she isn't interested though it might appear we can. For, of course, children learn things they don't want to learn all the time. Anyone who's been to school is very aware of this. For years, I was subjected to bribes or punishments or even shame to ensure I learned many things I had no interest in. Gold stars and reports full of compliments and high grades encouraged me to do my best. The threat of my parents receiving a bad report of my academic work and the fear of failing the numerous tests and exams, which were apparently essential for a successful and happy future, pushed me to study when I didn't really want to. The thought of being at the bottom of the class and labelled stupid shamed me into trying harder. But those methods of getting me to work were worth it, weren't they? I ended up with a great education, didn't I? Yes, I received high enough marks. That cannot be denied. But a great education? On the day I finished my formal schooling, I said with great relief, no one can make me learn anything ever again. And then I promptly forgot most of what had been forced into me over the preceding years. Albert Einstein said, Education is what is left after you've forgotten everything you've learnt. I didn't end up with much of an education. But our children don't go to school 
Surely, homeschooled children are in a different situation. Many years ago, I was absolutely sure there were certain things my children needed to learn. They didn't agree. The battle was on, and I was determined to win. I was the mother, and I knew better than my children. Or did I? Even if I am convinced I know best, how am I going to get past the problem Gemma Rose stated so clearly? You can't make me learn anything I don't want to learn. Like the schools, I could bribe and punish and shame my children into studying what's in my homeschool plan. But I really don't believe knowledge gained this way is very valuable. I want my children to have a better education than the one I received, and for that to happen, motivation for learning must come from within, and not from outside a child. That internal motivator is love, which every child seems to have until forced learning chases it away. But just because my children follow their own interests. Doesn't mean I can't suggest new experiences and ideas they might like to learn about. Like anyone with a healthy attitude towards food, they try this and that, and often discover something new which they develop a real taste for. So frequently, my children, motivated by their love of learning, end up learning things I would like to share with them without me insisting. I am now wondering what John Holt had to say about this topic. I'm off to find out. This is what he said: "Of course, a child may not know what he may need to know in ten years. Who does? But he knows, and much better than anyone else, what he wants and needs to know right now. What his mind is ready and hungry for. If we help him or just allow him to learn that." He will remember it, use it, build on it. If we try to make him learn something else that we think is more important, the chances are that he won't learn it, or he will learn very little of it. That he will soon forget most of what he learnt, and what is worst of all, will before long lose most of his appetite for learning anything. Oh, that is so much better than all I have written. Why didn't I just quote John Holt in the first place? My daughter Imogen walks by, and I say, "I'm writing an unschooling post. Listen to this: You can't make me learn anything I don't want to learn. True or false? True," she replies. And even when children do learn something they're not interested in, they only learn just enough to satisfy whoever wants them to learn it. They don't retain that type of learning. Do you have an example? I ask. I'm thinking about music exams. Imogen replies. I'm not interested in all the general knowledge, but it's part of the exam. I just remember as much as is needed until the exam is over, and then I promptly forget it. Then Imogen adds, "But playing the music, of course, I never forget how to do that. That's the bit I love." Yes, that quote from John Holt is a really good one. It says it all. It took me a very long time to realize that I can't force my kids to learn anything that they don't want to learn. I think many people don't realize this. It made me think about the school system, the system that I came through. 
the system that my husband Andy teaches in. And I said to Andy one day, how do you get kids to learn? You can't force them to learn. He said, all I can do is try and make the subjects that I am teaching as interesting and engaging as possible. My kids have to want to learn it. He's a primary school teacher. I guess he could use threats and punishments and shame to get his kids to work. And I think a lot of teachers do do this because I have experienced it. Maybe he's a little bit different. The other point about forcing kids to learn. We might feel that we have to force maths into our kids to satisfy the education department so that we fulfill our homeschool registrations. But even then, I think that the education department realizes that parents can only offer. We have to provide opportunities for our kids to learn maths, but we can't force them. That's all we have to do legally. If our kids refuse to learn maths, there's not a lot we can do. I read somewhere in the rules and regulations, the guidelines, that a registration cannot be refused on the grounds that a child did not cooperate, as long as a parent tried. I guess it's the same with school teachers, isn't it? That kids will fail, regardless of a teacher's ability, a teacher's efforts to teach. Children can just sit there in the class and say, I refuse to cooperate. I was too scared to do that at school. I wonder why more children don't protest. The next maths story that I would like to share with you is called Approaching Maths Backwards. The other day I made a big mistake. I uttered the word maths in Gemma Rose's presence. Oh my, she instantly became stiff and prickly. What's wrong with maths, I asked. It's boring. It's just a lot of numbers. You don't like numbers? No. I attempted a little nudge. Numbers can be fun. We could play a game together. A computer game. Gemma Rose flung herself down on the sofa next to me with a huge sigh. I opened my computer and soon we were on the games page of the Manga High website. What would you like to play? Nothing? Anything? I could choose? I clicked on the first game on the page and waited while three other players joined us. Then Gemma Rose began dutifully working out problems while a character in a hot air balloon floated across the screen. Many problems later, the game finally ended, and these words flashed up on the screen. You finished third. Third? Every problem was solved correctly, and Gemma Rose finished third? What a stupid game. You have to get the answers faster, I said. Then I added, Do you think being timed helps children learn maths? No, being timed just makes me feel like panicking. Let me have a go, I said, as I chose a different game to play. Soon I was clicking and calculating and clicking. It wasn't long before I was sighing and saying, This is so boring. Do people think kids are stupid or something? This isn't a game. 
This is just a maths exercise in disguise. It's trickery. Chimeras grinned. I told you maths is boring, but it's not. And I know Gemma Rose isn't really bored by the subject. I've seen her interested in such things as the Fibonacci sequence and pi. I wonder if maths can be approached backwards. Could we offer the big picture, show children how fascinating and interesting maths is, and then wait for a child to wonder about the details? Maybe it's a bit like writing. We expose a child to the big picture by introducing them to great writing. When we read to them, a lot of children are then inspired to compose their own stories. But if we spend a lot of time making a child work on her spelling and grammar, she might lose interest. The details can be learned as a child actually writes. I've been pondering something else. Can maths concepts be approached from many different directions? For example, we could just tell our children what pi is and how to use it to calculate the area of a circle, which I am sure they've been impatiently waiting to do, and then set them some problems. Or we could treat pi as something very interesting in its own right and return to it again and again, just a little at a time, from different directions: a video, a book. A mention in a conversation, a pie, the apple variety. Each time a child comes into contact with pie, they learn more about it. So I have a daughter who can tell you about pie and Fibonacci, and even Pythagoras, but she's still not one hundred percent accurate when it comes to times tables, though she knows how to work them out given enough time. And you better not ask her to do long division. Some people might say, "Just make her sit down and get those maths facts learnt once and for all." I'm tempted to agree; that would make life a lot easier. But I can't do that. Why not? Because that would threaten our relationship. I'd lose Gemma Rose's trust. A barrier would go up, and she would stop listening to me. Who's in charge here? Someone else might add. Gemma Rose is. She knows what she needs to know right at this moment. I have discovered it's impossible to force kids to learn anything they don't want to know about. That doesn't stop parents trying, though, or teachers. I know if I'm heavy-handed, my daughter will probably run a mile from maths. But letting her learn maths in her own way. In her own time, may very well lead to something very exciting. Of course, real life is already teaching Gemma Rose a lot of the details of maths. I've been thinking about this too. You use maths all the time, I said to Gemma Rose. It's all around us. It is, and then we had a very interesting real maths moment. Perhaps I can tell you about that in my next post. Yes, I said earlier that Gemma Rose is not a maths person. Perhaps that's not quite true. She's not a maths person if I talk about numbers and manipulating them. But as I said in that post, she is interested in concepts like Fibonacci and Pythagoras. She likes to look at the big picture, and it's a fascinating picture. 
The whole world seems to run on maths. Lots of patterns. Everything obeys its rule. The world is very organized. I talked last week about how making maths fun can sometimes be a problem. Maths games aren't always fun. They're just maths exercises in disguise. Well, most of them are. They're ways that we try to force some maths into our children without them realizing. Though Jim Rose always realizes. I wonder if other kids do as well. Putting myself in Jim Rose's place and playing a few of these games did teach me a lot. I was able to see things from her point of view. Coming third when you've got all the answers right—that is very discouraging. We played another game one day, and at the end of it, we got the announcement "failed" in big capital letters. And it wasn't because we got the answers wrong; it was because we didn't get all the problems finished in a certain time period. And this can be a problem as well because a lot of the drilling of maths is timed. Kids only have a certain amount of time to work on the problems, and as Jim Rose said, she panics when she can hear a clock ticking. When she knows that she's only got so many seconds, so many minutes to get the right answers, it's not a very good way for people to learn. At the end of the last story that I read, approaching maths backwards, I mentioned another maths post. That I was going to write, and I'm going to read this one out as well. And it's called "Becoming Real Life Maths Detectives." We use maths all the time. I say to my daughter Gemma Rose, "Maths is everywhere, everywhere." She doesn't look convinced. You use maths to count your money, says Sophie, and when you're cooking, cooking. How many times have you heard this example when real life maths is mentioned? Real life maths, you know, cooking. My girls cook all the time. I have lots and lots of cooking entries in my homeschool records book. They all say similar things. My girls measured the mass and volume of solid and liquid ingredients. They used grams and maybe kilograms, metric cups. Milliliters and liters. They multiplied and divided. They recognized fractions. They used the oven and noted the temperature in degrees Celsius. Yes, there's lots of maths there, but real life maths isn't only about cooking. Let's be maths detectives. I suggest let's watch out for someone using maths. It isn't long before we notice Imogen measuring out our puppy's food. She uses a metric measuring cup. Imogen tells us how much food the puppy eats for each of her three meals. We quickly work out how much food she eats in a day. Then Jimmerose spots my son Callum's retractable tape measure, which he tossed on the table and forgot about. She pulls out the end of the metal tape to measure the table in centimeters, noting she could have used inches instead. It's my turn. Can I spot some maths? My daughter Charlotte is making coffee. 
She splashes some milk into each mug, and I say, "I wonder how much milk Charlotte used." I'm too lazy to get up and find out by performing an experiment. Anyway, it's not an appropriate time. I have a cup of coffee to drink before it gets cold. Instead, I say, "I wonder how much milk is in each of those individual UHT milk portions, the ones you get in motels." I do some googling and discover that each milk portion contains fifteen milliliters. We decide Charlotte would have used more than fifteen milliliters because she's more generous than a packaged portion. It doesn't take me very long to work out how many fifteen milliliter portions there are in a two-liter bottle of milk. One hundred and thirty-three. I Google the price of bottled milk. And I already have the price of a two hundred and forty pack of individual portions. I do a price comparison. Of course, bottled milk is the better buy. We wonder why anyone would buy the more expensive individual portions, and come up with some answers. Of course, we note that hardly anyone would use only fifteen milliliters of milk in their coffee if given the choice. If everybody did. One hundred and thirty-three people would be able to use one bottle of milk, and I have never known that happen. We've all witnessed lots of people putting milk into their coffee at a homeschool camp. We sip our coffee or milk while we chat about these things. We're not having a maths lesson; we're wondering and pondering. I tell the girls about a time when I used to buy sugar in individual portions. They don't remember because they were very young when I did this. They want to hear all about my attempt to slow down the older kids' intake of sugar. Even though the sugar costs more per kilo by buying it in individual sachets, we ate less of it, so it ended up cheaper in the long run. We finish our coffee and swallow the last crumbs of our homemade biscuits. While the girls return the cups to the kitchen, I open my homeschool records notebook and quickly type in all the real-life maths we have discussed. I wonder what other real-life maths we can spot. I say, "Shall we keep our eyes open?" The girls are agreeable. They're going to use their maths eyes. If you want to, you can use my tablet to take photos of any maths you find. Just a suggestion. I'm looking around. Do you know what I'm seeing? Lots and lots and lots of maths I can share with my daughters. Maybe we can have more maths conversations. Aren't conversations a great way to learn? They're enjoyable too. We could wonder and ponder. We could take some photos. Perhaps we could do a little research if we feel the need. It might be interesting, as long as it doesn't turn into a maths lesson. It could be a big temptation to turn every interesting conversation into a maths exercise. I know maths problems will appear while we're chatting. They did while we were chatting about portions of UHT milk. I also know if I insist my girls work them all out on their own, it will take lots of time. They will soon lose interest. They won't want to talk maths with me. I wonder if I could do any workings out aloud, allowing my girls to see what I'm doing. Of course, I wouldn't stop them helping if they feel so inclined. Do you think that will work? Yes, maths exercises is not what this is all about. This is about looking at the world together with wondering eyes. 
It's about showing my girls maths can be a very interesting and relevant subject. So we are going to be maths detectives. I think that being maths detectives can turn into maths exercises if we're not careful. As I said, it's a bit like when I was talking about my junk mail catalogue maths last week. We can get a little bit overzealous about the whole thing. If we talk too much maths, if we try to use every moment as a maths teaching moment, I'm sure our children's eyes will glaze over and they will stop listening. I think it has to be spontaneous sharing, excited sharing maybe. And I certainly did get excited when I started looking for maths in our real world. I think often we miss maths around us. We use maths all the time. We take it for granted. And that is quite okay as far as living goes, but if we're looking for something to put in our homeschool records books, we might fail to see our children using maths in lots and lots of situations. Of course, I wrote this story when my children were primary school age, and for primary school children, it is very, very easy to find lots and lots of examples of real-life maths, to take photos, to make a few notes. To summarize the math skills in each of those experiences and add them all to our records books. Of course, we can keep all this separate from our children. For them, it could just be an interesting conversation. I'm going to finish with just one last math story, even though there are a number of other ones on my blog, and I do invite you to go over the, to my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family, and have a look at the tag or the category maths if you are interested in other maths ideas. But this blog post I wrote two years ago, so I could have updated it. Some of the maths facts in it are a little bit different. But I think you will get the idea. It's a fun post, a fun maths post. It's called "Why Kids with Families Don't Need Workbooks to Learn Basic Maths." Thirty-two years ago, in the month of June, Andy and I were married. June is the first month of winter here in Australia, but we enjoyed a summer wedding because we were married in England. Before we were married, we often discussed our dreams for the future. I imagined having three or four children, but things didn't work out that way. We were blessed with eight. I had hoped for a girl and would have been quite content with just one, but we were given five gorgeous daughters. Of course, this means we have three handsome sons. Our first two children were born seventeen months apart. And it looks like there are three years between the births of the others, but this isn't true. Appearances are deceiving. Thomas was born during the three years between Charlotte and Sophie. He died twenty-eight and a quarter hours after birth, and although his place in the family isn't obvious to outsiders, it is to us. We know he, and not Sophie, is our sixth child. She is our seventh. There is a special relationship between our fifth daughter, Gemma Rose, and Imogen, our second. At the moment, Gemma Rose is eleven, and Imogen is twenty. When the digits of each of their ages are added together, 
they make two. After the next birthdays, these digits will both add up to three, and the following year, four, and so on. We love celebrating birthdays. There are only four months in the year when we don't get to eat birthday cake: March, June, August, and October. In June, we eat wedding anniversary cake instead. Three birthdays fall in summer, three in autumn, one in winter, and three in spring. We're counting down to our next birthday celebration. It's only two weeks away. If we add all our ages together, the result is two hundred and forty-six. Oh my, that's rather a large number. I was born on a Sunday. So was Imogen. Sophie and Thomas were born during daylight hours, one a.m. and one p.m. The rest of our children were born after dark. Thomas died on a Wednesday at three p.m., which is the hour of mercy. Duncan is the tallest member of our family, and Gemma Rose is the shortest. But she is quickly catching up with her sisters, who are all just over one point five meters in height. So am I. That's about five feet. I won't reveal anyone's weight, but I can tell you four of us wear women's size ten clothes. One wears women's size eight, and Gemma Rose is a child size twelve. These are Australian sizes. Gemma Rose has hobbit feet, big for her age. But she's rapidly growing into them. Her feet are the same size as Big Sister Imogen's, size six. The rest of the female members of our family have average-sized feet, size seven, except for Nora. Her feet are huge. I almost forgot to tell you about Nora. She's one of the girls too. She's also a dog. She is about eighteen months old, one and a half years. She weighs twenty-three kilos and is all muscle. I'm guessing she was a summer puppy, or maybe she was born at the end of spring. It's hard to tell. She was already five or six months old when we first met her in the animal shelter. There are ten chairs around our kitchen table. That's one for each member of our family, including Thomas. Of course, Thomas has never sat in his chair. But it's kind of nice knowing he has a chair of his own, like everyone else. Thomas's chair used to be the only empty chair when we all sat down to dinner. Nowadays, there are three empty places at our table because Felicity and Callum no longer live at home. When someone sets the table for dinner on an ordinary night, seven forks, seven knives, and seven spoons are needed. That's twenty-one pieces of cutlery. Add in the table mats, the plates, and the glasses, and there are forty-two things on the table. Usually, dinner has to be served seven ways, but if Callum and his fiancée come to dinner, we have to divide the meal into ninths and multiply the cutlery by nine. And when Felicity and her husband come home in a few months' time, and we gather for a family meal, we'll be dealing with multiples of eleven and elevenths. I'm glad I have a family to share a meal with. Sharing is a blessing. For example, I discovered that half a cake tastes so much better than a whole cake when the cake is shared with someone you love. 
ordinal, cardinal, hours, days, weeks, months, and the seasons of the year, time, weights, heights, ages, fractions, addition, subtraction, division, multiplication, and a good splash of sharing. A family is all about maths. These are just a few of our maths stories. We have a whole heap more. I bet you have lots of similar tales too. Do children need workbooks to learn basic maths? No, all they need is a family. So I hope from that story, which was a rather fun story to write, you can see that we use maths all the time. We're always comparing heights and what size shoes we have and whose birthday it is and what month of the year it is, what the season is. We're always multiplying and dividing, especially around the dinner table. I think you probably get the idea. Perhaps you'd like to write your own math story. This story is a good memory for our family. If you wrote your own math story, you could include it in your Evernote family journal, as well as your homeschool records book. I'm sure it will become a very treasured story. The added bonus is that it is full of maths. I've written a few other posts of this type where I have looked for maths in our everyday lives. For example, at Christmas time, I wrote one about Christmas card maths. And I have a blog post inside my head, which I haven't actually typed out yet, called Podcast Maths. The words Podcast Maths remind me that this is episode 99. And next week, I will get to episode 100, which feels like a huge milestone, a huge achievement for me. I have been blogging almost three years, and I do realize that I could have got to 100 episodes a lot sooner. I've had a break here and there over the past three years, and sometimes I wasn't very consistent about my podcasting. But I have got to 100 episodes, or almost. Yes, just one more to make. When I set out three years ago with the very first episode, I didn't imagine that I'd still be here three years later and that I would have found enough things to talk about to fill 100 episodes. I did say last week that it would be lovely if people stopped by my blog or my Facebook page and gave me some feedback about my podcasts. Would you like more podcasts? Should I keep podcasting past episode 100? Well, so far I've only had one comment about that. I don't know if that means that nobody is listening, or maybe it just means that nobody wants to listen to any more podcasts. 100 episodes is enough. Please feel welcome to visit my blog. I will put up some show notes that will include links to these blog posts that I shared with you today, if you would like to go and read them for yourself, also read the comments attached to them. And also, if you'd like to go over to Facebook, my page is also called Stories of an Unschooling Family. Well, next week, the 100th episode. I feel I ought to do something special for it. Just before I plugged in my mic and sat down to record this episode, I was thinking about questions and answers. 
If anybody has any questions that they would like me to try and answer, maybe that's something I could do next week. So if you do have a question, please come over to my blog or Facebook page and ask it. Of course, you would have to do that within the next few days so that I have time to think about the question and formulate my answer. Some questions are harder to answer than others, but I will give them a go. So I have come to the end of episode 99. I hope you found this episode interesting and helpful. If you have any questions about it, please ask. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you have a wonderful unschooling week. And until next time, remember to trust, respect, and love unconditionally.